Welcome, welcome. Thank you very much for coming. This is a kind of event. I'm Stephanie Flanders, but you don't really even need to know that because I'm not going to do very much this morning. Uh, I it's one of those sessions that I was really interested. I thought, well, if I'm if I'm going to uh, want to get a ticket for it anyway, I might as well get to go free and ask the first questions. <laughs> I am often asked, you know, when you're talking about economics and. Some people say to me, God, economics hasn't moved on very far, has it? You, do, you seem to be having the same arguments now that you were having in the 1930s about what to do with the economy when it's getting into trouble. And there's a lot of truth in that. And what's been really interesting, you know, one answer I can give is that there is quite a lot of agreement that the 30s is relevant to now. The last 10 years have sort of looked like the 30s in a way that nothing else between the 30s and now has looked like the 30s. So in that sense, it is relevant. And people on both sides of the debate about what to do about budgets and what to do with economies kind of agree with that, that some parts of the 30s, what happened in the 30s and what happened in America in the Great Depression, is very relevant to now and the decisions the government's taking, and some things are not so relevant. Of course, the big argument is over which are the relevant things and which are the not relevant things. So I hope that that might be part of what we get to in this uh, presentation and conversation today with someone who knows more about the policies that were taken, the decisions that were taken in the 30s in America than anyone else, certainly in Britain. Tony Badger, who's the Professor of American, professor of American History at Clare College in Cambridge, wrote a book a few years ago. He's written many books, but the book that's most relevant today, he did write about FDR's first 100 days. I have a particular soft spot for him as well because he's now chairman of the Kennedy Memorial Trust, which some of you will know sends bright young things off to Harvard or MIT for two years when they finish college here and builds connections with uh, America and between Britain and America. It was set up in the wake of uh, John F. Kennedy's death. And I say I have a soft spot because I was a Kennedy scholar. So was Sir Mervyn King, the outgoing Bank of England governor. So were many, many other people. So I'm very glad, grateful to him for supporting that side of the Anglo-American relationship. But I think... You know, I hope we will be getting to the relevance of our situation to what happened in the 30s in the States and certainly what happened. He's going to be talking about the comparison between the first 100 days of FDR, uh, first time in office, and President Obama's time in office, which, of course, was very economically turbulent as well. So, Professor, you're going to talk for about half an hour, and then we'll have, a, as I say, I'll get my end in, I'll be able to ask my questions first, and then I'll give all the rest of you a chance. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much, Stephanie. Uh, and I should note that we are no longer able to fund two years for Kennedy Scholars. Uh, and uh, that's one of the things I have to do is to raise some money to make sure that we can go on funding uh, the scholarships that Stephanie enjoyed. I want to go back to the summer of 2008. Um, Hillary Clinton and Obama were locked in a highly competitive battle for the Democratic nomination. When Obama finally secured the nomination, he gained almost no momentum in the polls. By contrast, the Republican candidate in 2008, John McCain, had won the nomination early, and he'd sort of sneaked under the radar after his campaign had apparently imploded earlier in 2007. When McCain nominated Sarah Palin for the vice presidency, he received a real surge in the opinion polls. As a senior Republican said to me earlier that summer, we have a failed war, an imploded economy, a candidate with major character flaws, and we, the Republicans, may still win. At the same time, I bought out a small book on FDR's The First 100 Days, and it was met with complete lack of interest on both sides of the Atlantic. <laughs> For both Barack Obama and myself, um, it all changed on September the 15th when Lehman Brothers collapsed. Uh, McCain impulsively suspended his campaign returned to Washington, but contributed almost nothing to the desperate efforts orchestrated by Hank Polson and others to shore up the banking system. Obama, by contrast, took advantage to, to shore up support for that rescue package, uh, working coolly to mobilize support for that, but at the same time taking the opportunity to denounce the Bush administration for getting into the mess they were. He surged ahead in the polls, he became only the third Democratic presidential candidate since 1900, FDR and Lyndon Johnson were the other two, to actually win over 50% of the national vote. 
and of the three key players in that uh, rescue package put together by the Bush administration, Polson, Ben Bernanke at the Federal Reserve, and Tim Geithner at the New York Fed. Bernanke and Geithner will stay on. Uh, Bernanke staying on as chair of the Fed, Geithner uh, going to the Treasury ship. I want to start with that Obama victory because I want to emphasize both the scale of his achievement, not only the first African-American president to, to win the presidency, uh, but also what I still think is the most remarkable facet of that victory. He did what three white Southerners couldn't do. He did what Al Gore, Bill Clinton, and Jimmy Carter couldn't do, which was to win the former Confederate state of Virginia. And so that gives you some idea of this extraordinary achievement by Obama in 2008, but also basically its underlying fragility. As for my book, the British press noted the similarities between the 1933 crisis and the crisis of 2008. Uh, Andrew Smithers, an investment guru in Britain, approvingly drew the lesson from my book that Roosevelt's financial rescue package worked because the one group that didn't have anything to do with it were the bankers themselves. <laughs> then on October the 12th, I received an email from a political advisor at number 10. As you can probably guess, it said, we are doing some work on how we might respond to the downturn in economic activity that will probably flow from the credit crunch. <laughs> and being a historian, Gordon's instinct is to look to see what we can learn from previous attempts to deal with similar problems. Well, I produced a 10-page memo on the New Deal for the Prime Minister. I did make a point of noting that the New Deal had invested in the education infrastructure, uh, something that many scholars ignore. And I said it rescued American schools and universities long before federal aid to education, the New Deal built schools, paid teachers' salaries, invested in capital projects in the universities, and paid students to stay on at school and in college. Um, whatever effect the rest of the memo had, I know that this had absolutely no effect at all. <laughs> but it was Obama's election that really stirred interest in the book. Opening my email on mo Monday morning, November the 17th, I found a message from CNN urgently requesting a live TV interview. I was told that Barack Obama had mentioned reading a new book on FDR in the first 100 days the previous evening in his first post-election major national TV interview. It was flattering that CNN assumed that it was my book that he was talking about. <laughs> they were entirely undaunted by the fact that it turned out he'd been reading a very different book. <laughs> <laughs> An earlier one by Jonathan Alter. Nevertheless, that didn't stop them. I stood on the driving rein of the steps of Clare College telling American viewers live about what their president-elect might be expected to learn from their own history. Uh, in November uh, 2008, Gordon Brown was re recommending the, the book as his book of the year, an endorsement which was much more helpful in November 2008 than when the book came out in paperback the following summer. <laughs> uh, by January 2009, uh, historian and future Labour MP Tristram Hunt was claiming in The Observer that the book was, quote, top of the political classes reading lists on both sides of the Atlantic at Christmas. Perhaps more impressively... Uh, an alert former graduate student drew my attention to the fact that Indianapolis quarterback Peyton Manning, identified by Sporting News as one of the top 20 smartest athletes in the United States, he was ranked number 14, was currently reading FDR the first 100 days. <laughs> Indian Prime Minister Manmohan Singh said that the book showed that it was, quote, possible to harmonize a vibrant vision of reform with the prevailing political realities to joggle out of systemic complacency. So you will note that modesty has been outlawed from the British academic profession. <laughs> now, it's not surprising that a democratic president, a new democratic president, should have referred back to the 1930s. Uh, Obama, like all presidents, uh, since Franklin Roosevelt, lives in the shadow of the FDR. The New Deal was, quote, the defining moment of the 20th century, as economic historians put it. It basically altered the basic rules, institutions, and attitudes governing the economy. It established the notion that the government was responsible for the health of the economy. So a federal government, which had basically been unimportant in the United States for ordinary Americans uh, before the 1930s, 
Most ordinary Americans had almost no contact with the federal government before 1933. But as a result of the New Deal, as in their daily lives, ordinary Americans live under the parameters laid down by the New Deal. Farmers, workers, bankers, financiers, the poor, all live under a framework established by laws laid down in the 1930s. Now, this huge explosion in the federal government came about because of the worst depression in American history and the financial collapse that followed. When Roosevelt took office in March 1933, the entire banking system had ground to a halt. The day he was inaugurated, the governors of New York and Illinois closed their state banks, a culmination of six weeks when state after state had closed their banks in order to try and prevent the runs on the deposits by desperate customers trying to withdraw their money. This response was largely improvised, and the policy was a huge gamble. Roosevelt had had four months between the election in November and the inauguration in March to get ready for an accelerating banking crisis, and he had absolutely no plans worked out. There wasn't anybody, said one person who actually drafted the banking legislation in 33, in the entire brains trust had apparently given any thought. They had absolutely no plans or any real study to the problem created by this banking situation. The man drafting that bill remembered that after a conference in the White House, quote, I had a little slip of paper in my hand about that big, and I wrote one line on each subject. That's all I had to go by. When they put the bill to, to Congress, to the House of Representatives on the Thursday uh, after the uh, inauguration on a Saturday. The Emergency Banking Act was passed with only one copy of the bill in existence after only 43 minutes of debate. The Senate was slightly more leisurely, but passed the bill later the same day. Over the next three days, the Treasury officials and bankers tried to work out which banks would be safe to reopen. They erred on the side of optimism. But ultimately, success would depend on, quote, a man-to-man -man appeal for confidence by the president. And when Roosevelt addressed the nation in the first of his fireside chats on Sunday, March the 12th, it was a tremendous gamble. He told Americans that it was safer to put their money back in the banks, which were scheduled to reopen the next day, than it was to put them under the mattress. They believed him. And the next day, sure enough, money flowed back into the banks. There was no plan B. If people had continued to keep their money out of the banks, absolutely disaster, absolute disaster would have followed. It's an extraordinarily narrow gap between success and failure in March 33. Roosevelt then took advantage of the momentum to secure major reform and recovery legislation, particularly over the next three years. He had no carefully worked out plans. He seized opportunities. Some of the most New Deal, successful New Deal measures, like the insurance of bank deposits, um, were measures that he was initially unenthusiastic about or opposed to. His microeconomic reforms, particularly of the early New Deal, are largely thought to have failed. Uh, government loans to business to expand were left out of recovery legislation, probably the New Deal's biggest mistake. Nevertheless, uh, devaluation and the financial stimulus that Roosevelt brought in did work. Nowhere in the Western economy had the economy collapsed as far and as rapidly. Real GMP declined by well over a third between 29 and 33, and it basically recovered that in the first three years of the New Deal. When Roosevelt cut spending in 1937, it fell back. But contrary to widespread assumptions, the New Deal had secured economic recovery before defense spending and before World War II. Although there were stubbornly high unemployment figures throughout the 1930s, that masked the fact that 3.5 million Americans were actually employed on direct federal government programs, uh, but were still counted uh, as unemployed. Alongside recovery, Roosevelt also showed that you could get financial, you could get reform at the same time as you were bringing economic recovery at a time of economic emergency. Uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority, financial regulation, the Social Security Act, a, a sort of ramshackle welfare state that the New Deal introduced. Above all, he invested in the nation's infrastructure, uh, nowhere did federal investment in roads, health, water, cheap electrical power have a greater impact than in the South and the West, the Sun Belt. And these were the, this Sun Belt became the driver of American economic growth after World War II. 
Now, when you make a comparison, most presidents measured up against those achievements were found, have been found wanting since 1933. But in January 2009, it looked as if it was going to be different. Here was a major financial crisis, an ensuing rece recession, a discredited outgoing president, all like 1933, a charismatic new president with an electoral mandate and large congressional majorities. But of course, it didn't work out as the pundits hoped. Within a year, majority of Americans disapproved of Obama's handling of the economy, the deficit, and healthcare reform. Uh, he lost, the Democrats lost Ted Kennedy's seat in Massachusetts in January 2009, uh, 2010, and therefore lost the supermajority, which guaranteed that legislation could pass Congress. He lost seats in the 2010 midterm elections. Roosevelt had won seats in the 1934 midterm elections. Obama lost them and lost control of the House, barely held on to the Senate. In his second term, as you know, the economic record continued to be lackluster at best. The unemployment figures remained stubbornly high, and Congress remained gridlocked. Obama went into the 2012 election with an unemployment rate of around 8%. No recent president had won with unemployment that high. So, whereas in 1936, Roosevelt won a re-election re for a second term with a, one of the greatest landslides in American history, despite a 16% unemployment rate, Roosevelt secured overwhelming majorities in both houses of Congress. Obama, by contrast, eked out a victory in an election race that was far too close for comfort. There were few Obama coattails in 2012. The House of Representatives remains firmly in Republican hands. So what had gone wrong? Well, Obama's advisers explicitly learned the lessons of the 1930s. The chair of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, had actually done his graduate work on monetary policy and the Great Depression. Uh, his Secretary of, uh, his chair of the Council of Economic Advisers, Christine Romer, had also worked on the Great Depression and what ended it. And she drew three clear lessons from the New Deal. First, financial recovery and real recovery go together. In other words, however much you don't want to do it, however much it rankles, you have to bail out the banks. Second, to create jobs in the private sector, you have to spend much more money than you envisaged. One crucial lesson, Roma said, of the 1930s is that a small fiscal expansion has only small effects. Roosevelt, in other words, had not spent enough money. And third, Roma warned, and this has remained the heart of the current, the current administration policy, beware of cutting back the stimulus too soon. Roosevelt attempted to balance the budget in 1936. He plunged the country into the Roosevelt recession of 37 and 38 which wiped out many of the employment gains of the first administration. So this is the message that Obama's economic advisers took on board, that you should, do, have, you should follow the example of the New Deal, only do it more boldly, and to do more of it. But if you're on the right in the United States, historians and commentators have a very different view of the 1930s. Economic historians basically blame the New Deal for prolonging the Depression by raising business costs and by creating a climate of regime uncertainty amongst investors. That's an economic analysis. On the right, though, there is a passionate moral critique of the 1930s, which created the Big Bang of the federal government. Whether you're on the, uh, the right of the 1990s or whether you're the Tea Party today, uh, the 1930s were when America took a decisive wrong turn in its national history. Uh, Andrew Mellon and Calvin Coolidge, in this interpretation, become heroes. Uh, Herbert Hoover and Franklin Roosevelt are villains for interfering with the market. The New, De New Deal expending essentially bribed the electorate. It promoted class warfare instead of class unity. It created a bureaucracy that was self-perpetuating and anti-business. It destroyed American traditions and voluntarism, self-help and individualism. One Wall Street journalist, journal columnist described, quote, this massive catalogue of government failures that were launched in Washington by the New Deal in the 1930s. The New Deal caused more human suffering and deprivation in America than any other set of ideas in the 20th century. 
And groups like the Tea Party basically doubt the entire constitutionality of the New Deal and its entire moral basis. I won't go into why I think, this, as a historian, that this analysis of the 1930s is fundamentally flawed, um, but I would just say that the austerity package which they recommend, and they recommend in retrospect, and they recommend today, uh, the austerity package in the 1930s is based on an extraordinarily complacent reading of how the American unemployed and farmers would have reacted to even more austerity and retrenchment than they had in the 1930s. All the evidence is, uh, and New Dealers were very conscious of this, uh, that if they wanted to strengthen and perpetuate democracy in the United States, they had to alleviate the suffering uh, of the unemployed and the farmers. These had been extraordinarily patient and stoical, but there was evidence in 1933 that that patience and stoicism was about to be exhausted. And the New Dealers certainly thought that unless they aided the poor and unemployed, they were not going to actually um, save and safeguard democracy. This dispute over the 1930s shows why there is such an ideological chasm in Washington today. The passionate hostility to the role of government, to taxation and to government spending on such a large part of the Republican Party shows why Obama is finding it so difficult to replicate Roosevelt's success. Obama and his team did learn that you needed to bail out the banks, and that has worked. Um, they bailed out the auto industry, and that has worked. They've achieved modest but sustained recovery. They believe they've saved at least two million jobs. And clearly, quantitative easing and low interest rates have been promised by the Federal Reserve for as long as is necessary. They believe they've done a good job. Central bankers, for instance, the former president of the uh, European Central Bank, Jean-Claude Trichet, uh, uh, the senior vice president and head of credit risk at the New York Federal Reserve, both of whom lectured in my college uh, in recent years, both say, remind people how close to the abyss the world economy was in January 2009. Reading the memoirs of the major players reveal just how close institutions like AIG, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, GE Capital, the automakers, how close they came to bankruptcy in January 2009. A matter of days, in some cases a matter of hours. But if the policy has been successful, why hasn't the Obama administration received much credit for it? First is rescuing banks and the automobile workers caused enormous resentment. Uh, and that reflects a major difference from 1933 when it cost very little to bail out the banks and industry. Secondly, the New York banker made a simpler point. How do you get credit for what didn't happen? Saving jobs is not the same as creating jobs. And the stimulus certainly worked in a slow and sporadic way. Money trickled down extraordinarily painfully. And one of the biggest failures of the Obama administration was in housing, where they could have followed the New Deal example much more uh, significantly by uh, being much bolder in attempting to take over uh, mortgages and to help uh, the homeowners who were being foreclosed. Above all, speed is of the essence. Roosevelt, in 1933, put a quarter of a million to people to work on the Civilian Conservation Corps in six weeks. Faced with likely starvation in the winter of 33-34, Harry Hopkins put three and a half million people to work on the Civil Works Administration in just over, in just over 90 days. Within 90 days of the start of the Roosevelt administration, millions of farmers were receiving government checks uh, to, which transformed their economic position. So Obama's failure to get money into the hands of ordinary Americans quickly enough explain why it's been so difficult for him to emulate Roosevelt's relations in dealing with Congress. 1933 was different from 19, 2009, no matter how many similarities we talk about. It's different to have, as they did in 1933, an unemployment rate of between 25% and 33% uh, unemployed, and probably a lot of the rest of the workers working short time. Um, agriculture, which is not so important these days, in 1933 employed a third of the workforce and was destitute. There was no national welfare. There were no stabilizers. There was no safety net. There was no national welfare system. There was no social security. There was no guarantee of bank deposits. There was a sense of desperation in 1933 that was simply not there 
in 2009. And the key effect was in Congress. In 1933, both politicians in both parties heard from their constituents that they had to support the president. And that included many Republicans, particularly many re progressive Republicans from the West. After 2008, conservative and centrist Democrats elected from previously Republican seats clearly felt no such pressure to back Obama, nor did, of course, the Republicans. That's explained why it took so long for Obama to get his stimulus package through uh, Congress and why not one Republican in the House supported it and only three in the Senate. Seldom in American politics has politics been so polarized on party lines. As one political scientist noted, it's gotten so bad that Republicans don't want to be seen publicly in the presence of Democrats or have a Democrat profess friendship for them. Um, the 60-vote target in the Senate, the idea that you have to have 60 votes in order to stop filibusters, uh, the tradition of unlimited debate. A filibuster used to be an occasional device used by the occasional principal senator or by a southern Democrat against civil rights legislation. Between 1917 and 1970, there were only 58 votes in Congress to cut off the filibuster, to, to, to cut off this tradition of unlimited debate. Since January 2009, there have been 250 mainly vain attempts to cut off filibusters. The filibuster is a routine tool of the opposition party in American politics today. Veterans of the Senate, who from the 1970s, if you interview them, remember a very different politics. They talk about a politics where people try to pass legislation and to work across the aisles. Today, they complain, senators aren't interested in legislation, what they want are symbolic hot-button issues, like abortion or gay marriage, often issues on which the legislature cannot meaningfully act. All they want is a roll-call vote in which they can nail their opponents for being on the wrong side. A policy advisor to Senate Republicans sadly noted, I used to think it would take a global financial crisis to get both parties to the table, but we just had one. Uh, these days, I wonder if this government is governable. Two political scientists working for the conservative American Enterprise Institute wrote a book, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, uh, and they blamed ideologically extreme Republicans for the debacle. There's been an exodus of moderates from Congress, and one South Carolina Republican candidate in the congressional primary recently summed up this view about working across the aisles when he said, the only purpose to work across the aisles is to headbutt your opponent. Well, how much is Obama to blame for this mess? It's easy to blame the Republicans, always the prisoners of their tax-cutting, socially conservative base. But it is also true that the Democrats have forgotten how to legislate. They have controlled Congress and the White House for only 10 years, since 1968, and Obama's advisers were entirely too complacent and confident when they came to power in 2009. Roosevelt never forgot the basic lesson of American politics. It is impossible to overflatter an American congressman. <laughs> Obama seems incapable of uh, doing with a clear conscience uh, following that example. Similarly, for all his eloquence, uh, he fails to communicate with ordinary Americans, not just with con congressional leaders. Roosevelt was a patrician gentleman, farmer, from upstate New York. But a North Carolina textile worker could say that Roosevelt was the first man in the White House who knew that his boss was a son of a bitch. Uh, and Obama doesn't convey that same empathy to ordinary Americans. And healthcare in 2009-10 symbolized the casual and sloppy way that the Obama administration handled the major reform and whereas Roosevelt handled Social Security in due time and with expert analysis and a technocratic reform, Obama uh, basically allowed Congress to go home in the summer of 2009 completely unprepared for the Tea Party explosion uh, that followed. Healthcare, which should have been a fireproof policy achievement, has become a toxic political liability. Nevertheless, one must point out, Obama suffers from one of the major differences between today's world and the world of New Deal leaders. 
and the following generation of leaders and voters. In 1963, 75% of Americans believed that the government could be relied on to do the right thing. And in 63, they could look back from the Depression, post-war posterity, the GI Bill and everything, and see why they thought that. Nowadays, by the 1990s, fewer than one in four Americans had the same faith in the federal government. And by October 2011, less than one in 10 Americans trusted the federal government to do the right thing. Any president of the United States has to live with that profound culture of anti-status suspicion. But the final lesson that, Rose, that Obama could learn from Franklin Roosevelt is that of luck. Throughout his life, Roosevelt was fortunate in timing, unlike, unlike his much more intelligent and capable predecessor, Herbert Hoover. It, Roosevelt was inordinately helped by his opponents. The Rep Republican Party reacted to the 1932 defeat by counterintuitively moving to the right and not to the center. Even their relatively moderate presidential candidates were hindered by a relentlessly conservative party machinery. 2008, Obama was enormously helped by an opponent with an uncontrollable temper and an inability to grasp economic issues. McCain, anchored, angered by his party's refusal to allow him to select Joe Lieberman for the vice presidency, impulsively chose Sarah Palin as his running mate without vetting her candidacy. However much Palin energized the Republican base, she helped May make McCain unelectable. The rules for the, 19, to, for the 2012 Republican primaries were deliberately changed to prevent the election of someone like McCain. They were deliberately changed to try and replicate the Democratic primaries of 2008, a long, slow campaign to make sure the right candidate got elected. But because the Republican base distrusted Romney, there were a succession of any but Romney candidates. Uh, Michelle Bachman, creationist, who believed that the Muslim Brotherhood had infiltrated the State Department. Governor Rick Perry, who could not remember the names of the three cabinet departments he wanted to abolish. <laughs> Newt Gingrich, disgraced three-time former speaker. Herman Cain, African-American pizza salesman. Rick Santorum, a member of Opus Dei, defeated by 16 points in his last race for the Senate in Pennsylvania. Each time the candidates surged for a time, each time Republicans, Romney had to make concessions to this social and economic conservatism, and the primaries represented a huge effort in anti-intellectual fundamentalism. Now, the 2012 election should not have been close. First, any Republican ought to have cruised to victory with unemployment rates that high. But then it shouldn't have been close for a second reason. Obama spent more money by the end of August than any previous presidential incumbent in the election cycle. Part was to build up a superb grassroots organization. Part was a negative campaign against Romney to make him unelectable. And basically, they had succeeded by September, especially when Obama said, uh, when Romney was caught saying, I, you can exclude 40% of the American electorate, no point in campaigning for them, they're going to support my opponent because they're dependent on government handouts. So it, it had worked. Romney looked unelectable. Then came the first debate, and Obama seemed not to turn up for the first debate. And so the, the election was unnecessarily tight right until the end. So 2012 was not 1936. It was not a landslide re-election for an incumbent. But Obama was able to learn the most useful lesson he could learn from Roosevelt, be lucky in your opponents. But the lessons of the second term, the lessons of FDR, are not very promising. Roosevelt exploited his electoral mandate, tried to reform the Supreme Court, failed despite his lopsided majorities. He cut government spending, caused a major recession, boosted conservatives enormously. The greatest thrust to social reform in American history was basically stalled for the next 25 years by a combination of Southern Democrats and conservative Republicans. Roosevelt found what all second presidents have found. You can threaten congressmen in your first term with electoral retribution. You cannot in your second term no president has had a successful elected second term since the Civil War. Obama has yet to show that the awkward mix of bluster and negotiation which characterized him in the first term is yet to show that he can work, make this work in the second. The evidence on gun control and sequestration and the fiscal cliff suggests that he can't. Last Friday, 
The Economist suggested that Obama might be able to rescue his second term by taking a lead on immigration reform, tax reform, and tackling and cutting entitlement spending. Well, it's possible that immigration reform will come because the Republicans are desperate to make amends to Hispanic voters, the force of the future in American politics. I'm deeply skeptical that Obama has the skill to put together a package that can satisfy both sides and deliver tax reform, tax cuts, and still not dramatically cut government spending. But it is on entitlement spending, the spending on Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, that Obama will be unable to escape the trap that Roosevelt set for future politicians in the 1930s. 1935 Social Security Act, which is the same basis of funding for Medicare and Medicaid, was funded by contributing payroll taxes paid by employees and employers. The government didn't make any contribution. Critics told Roosevelt that these taxes were aggressive and were harmful to the economy. Roosevelt said, these taxes were never a problem of economics. They were politics all the way through. We put these payroll tax contributions there so as to give the contributors a legal, moral, and political right to collect their unemployment benefits. With those taxes in place, no damn politician can ever scrap my social security program. And it is that legacy of FDR that will probably doom the Obama's second term to failure in the domestic realm. Thank you very much for your patience. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to ask one question. Uh, I want to ask about the second uh, term. And I should, I should sort of declare an interest in the sense that uh, I worked in the US Treasury because I'm half American, uh, in the second Clinton administration for Larry Summers, who then in the first Obama administration was the chairman of uh, President Obama's Council of Economic Advisers. And I did work at the Treasury with Tim Geithner, who was then at the New York Fed trying to, in the, in the thick of the financial crisis, and then uh, Treasury Secretary. So I've seen some of these former colleagues trying to grapple with some of the things that you, uh, and I perhaps have... Uh, even deeper sympathy for them and the, and the struggles they've had, particularly with Congress. So I want to ask you a bit about the second term. But firstly, you said yourself, um, contrary to popular belief, I'm not sure it is popular belief, but it's certainly something that many economists say, uh, that the recovery was not really in place until you had serious, what you might call Keynesian sort of pump priming, serious borrowing by the state and government spending in the late 30s in the lead up to World War II. And that actually, when you look at the numbers, uh, you know, we think of the New Deal as being this wonderful outbreak of Keynesian stimulus and you know, pouring money into the economy. The deficits that were run in only a few years by the federal government were really very small compared to anything we think of now. And when you look at the size of the programs relative to the size of the economy, many researchers I've spoken to um, at least, and I'm not, I'm not the expert, but they always say, oh, people are overstating that. It really was about the confidence in the banks and the very loose, the low interest rates, the monetary policy, much more than what we think of, which is, you know, big budget deficits. Is that, but you seem to suggest in your speech that you don't, you don't agree with that, that the, the, the actual borrowing side was more significant than economists say. No, I, I think what all I'm trying to say is that the, the microeconomic policies of the first New Deal, which have been condemned by, uh, usually accepted on all sides, defenders of the New Deal and critics say they really didn't work in industrial recovery. Mm. It's all based on the assumption uh, that uh, if they hadn't done anything, that confidence in the new monetary policy uh, would have produced recovery. Um, but the, the counterfactuals by econometric historians these days suggest that if they hadn't done, uh, if they hadn't had things like the National Recovery Administration in 1933, the economy would have continued to go down if it hadn't actually reached the bottom. And so the, the revival of confidence uh, wouldn't have come without those government programs. Uh, and that uh, when, you, when you look at the achievement of virtually recovering all that fall in GMP in three years, um, you, you need to run that against not so much just getting that, re that, that recovery and, and eliminating the, the backlog of 29 to 33, but in a sense, you need to factor in the other, the additional 30% from 
falling GNP, which would have occurred if there hadn't been New Deal policies. On the defence spending, uh, I think all I'm saying there is that uh, the New Deal... Um, that Roosevelt had decided to spend the game before he spent money on defence. Mm. And so, the, 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 yes, he, made, he dug a big hole for himself in 1937-38, um, but he had made the political, it's largely political decision to get out of it before that. And that did produce, start to produce the recovery that the then defence and the war carried on. Um, so, but I but would just agree. as a sense of perspective, though, I mean, I think because we've got so used to, in this era of sort of 100 billion plus, and in the case of the US, trillion dollar deficits, which are worth, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten percent of the economy. I mean, we, should, we, we were talking remarkably small numbers in the 30s. Yeah. I mean, it was when they did run a deficit, it was sort of one percent of GDP, yeah. if that. So we were still in the sort of foothills of any kind of government borrowing. I guess yeah. that's, I mean, going on to the. the um, Second question. I mean, I guess that's what uh, a lot of uh, critics of President Obama's policy would say. Would say now that it, you know, it's all very well learning the lessons of the 30s, but if we're already in a position, as you said yourself, where there's a big welfare state relative to the 30s, um, though not possibly relative to Europe, and a lot of supports in place um, that increase borrowing anyway, you know, was it right to? increased borrowing a lot more. How much did that really help the economy? Again, once you'd improved confidence in the banks, because I think everyone thinks they, would, they were fast and much more effective than the Europeans in putting money back mm. into the banks. I mean, I would agree with that, although you know, there are people on the right in the United States who, who still think we, it was wrong to rescue by the, either the mm. banks or the automobile workers. Um, but I think in, in, the, in the general question of, uh, you know, should they have kept on, on borrowing, I, I'm at a slightly at a loss to understand why, um, you know, people talk about uh, the importance of confidence, uh, and they talk about the importance of low interest rate. You have you have this confidence. You have low interest rates, guaranteed low interest rates for the future, an extraordinarily benign regulatory and tax regime, and yet American um, American in industry did not have confidence, and is only just about starting to recover confidence. And, it, and confidence needs a consumer market. And they need, you need to have confidence that people are actually going to buy what you produce. And that's only just starting to happen. And, 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 and when, when one looks at the deficit, the deficit uh, at the height of the Obama uh, administration was around about 10% of GDP. It's predicted now by 2015 to be down to 2.1%. Um, and, and we have state governments like California suddenly finding that they've got budget surpluses. Mm. So I, I would well, make a case for the fact that the policy worked. Well, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, there's the question about the second term. Is it possible in a year or two's time we won't be quite so damning of uh, President Obama's second term? I mean, you're holding up a pretty tough target. I think if I spoke to people in the administration and said, oh, by the way, you are expected, uh, at least uh, Tony Badger expects you to be um, as effective as, as Roosevelt in your second term, and if you're not, he will consider you a failure... Um, he, he, wants, he wants permanent, lasting entitlement reform, fixed immigration, which has been one of the long-standing political issues of the last 20 years in the UK, US. Um, and what was your other one you wanted him to do? Uh, I didn't want him um, to do The Economist okay, wants him to do tax, <laughs> oh, tax reform, which has also yeah. been, has not seriously happened since the 80s. You well, might I, think that you're quite a tough yardstick. Oh, I, I, make no, <laughs> make, I agree. I mean, he's not going to... Uh, that's a tough yardstick. Uh, we I'm might think if the, re the deficit's now falling much faster mm. than we expected... And so it may be that his policies will just look much better in a year or two's time, at least on the sort of major economic achievements. Yeah, I mean, but he's not going to achieve anything. Um, there's that phrase from Joseph Nye, you have transformational presidents or transactional presidents. And we all thought Obama was going to, well, not we all, some people thought Obama was going to be a transformational president. He may well look, in the end, as a rather successful, prudent, transactional president. And I think economic recovery will, rather like in the Clinton administration, the Clinton second term was pretty useless. Um, but but um, uh, the uh, uh, but nevertheless, the economy did well. Yeah, and, a budget and, surplus. We yeah. handled quite a lot of financial crises. I seem to remember. <laughs> um, on the politics of this, we'll get onto, we'll have questions in one second. But just you you did you did hint to the fact that certainly my memory of the, the 30s um, sort of congressional history was you could you could have said that the. Congress then in many ways was as obstructionist as, and certainly the Republicans were as obstructionist and as resentful of FDR 
as they are of President Obama. Certainly, they're, they're, you could make comparisons and the difficulties that he had. He was considered by many people to be acting like a dictator, threatening things in terms of getting people onto the Supreme Court and everything else. I mean, was it just that he was able to reach over the heads of Congress to the people in a way that President Obama has not been able to do? And if that's the case, is that to do with the media or to do with personal flaws of Obama relative to FDR? I think it's, it's, it's two things. It's um, Roosevelt could only really do that successfully in his first term. Um, I mean, it was amazing that you get a Social Security Act passed with almost no opposition. You get the, WAG, the Labor Relations Act, which is probably the most radical act passed by any uh, American, most anti-business act passed by any American Congress. And, and Roosevelt gets that in 1935 um, when you would have thought that that was pretty well impossible. Uh, and, and, uh, and until 1936, he certainly could go over the heads of the people and say, you know, back me um, and tell your congressman to back me. And certainly for Southern Democrats, that was a very powerful message that they were desperate for economic assistance. And that's the, the, the key. The constituents were desperate in a way that they're not so desperate nowadays, partly because of the changes in, in America brought about by, by the New Deal. Having said that, I think Obama doesn't, doesn't have that capacity to uh, create the same sort of empathy. It's not um, our fault. It's not sort of 24-hour news cycles and things. You think he just can't... It's all... Make, it make, the media make it, make it difficult... But if you don't have the, if, the, if your constituents aren't desperately, um, uh, desperately hard up and really struggling uh, in the way that they were in the 30s, then they're simply not, go the, the pressure is going to be different. I mean, the pressure is going to come from a different lobby. It's going to come from all those, that Republican base in, in, in what for most Americans, uh, most American congressmen operate in safe seats these days. And, and their base, the Republican base, is certainly telling them we distrust the government, you know, don't you dare support anything that expands the federal government. Right, over to you. You probably have much better questions. Um, yeah, so this hand over here, do you, is your preference, do you want to take a few at a time or one at a time? A few at a, uh, one at a time. Okay, okay. So, so this gentleman in the, in the blue. Um, yeah. um. Uh, just a question, you didn't uh, address too much the causes of the Great Depression or the consequences of it for the rest of the world. Uh, one of my understandings about it was that the sort of Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act in 1930 or 31 led to protectionist policies and sort of beggared our neighbour throughout Europe. To what extent do you see that being a risk today for the, both the US and, and, the, and the world economy? And I certainly, there were the sort of the bra and the sort of tie wars with China and whether that is going to be a, a risk today. I think to be fair to Obama and to, to most governments, um, that is one lesson they've learned from the 1930s, that, that strictly nationalist, really tough nationalistic foreign policies, which were certainly the policies Roosevelt followed in 1933, um, although he changed afterwards, um, that, that you, th th those are impossible in today's world. Uh, and I think most of the protectionist gestures are that, gestures. Um, yeah, I think that's right. So there's a woman, yes, with the mic. To what extent would you say race has played an effect in Obama's ability to succeed or fail in his economic policies? It's, I, I, I think it's, when one, when one examines the hatred of Obama on the right, um, that does seem to be disproportionate to whatever, anything he's tried to do. Uh, and it's difficult to avoid the sense uh, that, particularly on the Republican right, there is a sense that it is that somehow white Americans are, are presidents, and something, there's something illegitimate about the Obama presidency. That, it, you need some explanation like that to explain the passion of their hatred for Obama, rather like their passion for their hatred for, for Bill Clinton. They believe the most incredible things about Bill Clinton, and they believe the most incredible things about Obama. And in, in Obama's case, it, it seems to me very difficult to escape the conclusion uh, that, 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 that the party of angry white males, which is the Republican Party, um, that, that the race isn't something to do with their, the, the intensity of their opposition. Because they used to call Clinton the first black president. Yeah. And then they asked uh, Obama about that, and it was one of these awful moments. It was a terrible question to ask him. What do you think? Do you think it's true that Bill Clinton is the first black president? <laughs> <laughs> What's he going to say? Um, uh, another part of the room. Well, so... Uh, 
was actually no here this gentleman said his hand up Thanks. I should declare an interest as an ex-Treasury person before asking this question. <laughs> UK Treasury. Um, UK Treasury, yeah, under, under Gordon Brown, who you mentioned. <laughs> um, my, my question really is around uh, whether we've sort of flipped wholesale from 33 to now. Because you talked about there being a, a real shift in 33 where the US became statist for the first time. And if you flip back to where we are in the UK, which comes from much more statist tradition, We've actually had the response to the 2008 position from the current government, at least, being one that seems to eschew statism as an answer at all. We have similar monetary policies, but we haven't followed the Obama approach to capital investment to help recovery. I just wonder what your reflections were upon that in the UK context um, as we stand today. I, th I think the record on the, in America certainly suggests that uh, the unvarnished austerity package in this country um, is, is, has problems and is not, has not been as successful as the Obama uh, administration approach. Um, I mean, it's not that the Obama administration has been profligate or hugely statist, and, and they, they have all these self-inflicted damages done by the fiscal cliff and the sequestration, which they think will cost maybe three, three quarters of a million jobs by, by next September. Um, but nevertheless, it seems to mean to have been a prudent policy, and, and I'm not sure that I would characterise the current policy in this country as prudent. I'm sorry, I'm afraid the disadvantage of having me here is that the god of BBC impartiality is forcing me to give another view. Um, but I think I would just I would say one view of the US and the Obama, although the, the pace of they certainly haven't tightened and had austerity at the federal level in the way that we have in the UK, although uh, it hasn't been, we've still been borrowing a lot mm. in the UK. Um, but there is a lot of tightening, you know, states were all meeting their balanced budget agreements. So if you actually look at what borrowing has done overall in the US, it's gone down a lot. You know, there's been a lot of austerity in the states, which has been offset by a bit more spending or sort of continued spending by the federal government. So you can exaggerate. It's definitely true that they didn't put the brakes on at the federal level, but there, were a lot of, there was a lot of austerity at the, rest, at the other level. And you, you, can, you can exaggerate the differences between the two, but it's a hard argument for George Osborne to make because he, want, he wants to suggest that he is sticking to his austerity plan while also saying that he's still borrowing a lot and it's quite hard for him to... Both of those things... Uh, are true, and it's, it's, but it's hard for him to say it at the same time, I think. And the state comparison is one that's very true from the 1930s. There's, as you know, a strong argument that uh, the effect of federal government spending and borrowing in the 1930s was offset by state retrenchment. Because they all budget. have these balanced budgets. Yeah, in the, in the 1930s as well. Right, a couple more. Um, yes, a gentleman there. No, okay. To uh, many people uh, here, the opposition to the health care reforms has been completely mysterious. I wonder if you could give uh, a historical perspective on that to make some sense of it. Good question. Um, the, uh, when, the National health Service, when, when the National Health Service came in in 1947 in Britain, Republicans were already... Uh, condemning at the time when McCarthyism or anti-communism was beginning to really come to the fore in domestic American politics, uh, much of the Republican criticism of the Truman administration uh, and uh, and its policies were not that it was communist like the Soviets, but that it was socialist like the Brits, uh, and uh, and and this was after all Britain was you know the great anti-communist ally in the Cold War. Uh, and yet the National Health Service was always portrayed by Republicans as being this statist conspiracy. Uh, and it was one of the reasons why Truman couldn't get national health insurance through in, 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 in his administration. Uh, and, and it's an extraordinarily powerful argument uh, that the, the health insurance industry in the United States has been so uh, successful. It's a major lobbying campaign, but the, the world view, it's a bit like gun control. The worldview of the opponents of, of, of healthcare is that healthcare is socialist, um, European, um, all the, the buzzwords that condemn it. 
Uh, and the, the, you can go on arguing about, uh, about uh, coverage and, and how in, a, in the world's richest economy, how scandalous it is that you have uh, infant mortality rates within blocks of the White House that are at third world levels. You can go on like that and it makes no impact um, that Americans who vote disproportionately believe that their, their most important freedom is their freedom to choose a doctor. Um, and, you know, the, the nonsense about death pan panels um, is, is sort of sums, sums that up. There's a gentleman here, yeah, on the far side. Sorry, Jeffrey Lee of the Daily Telegraph. Um, just following on right slightly from that, um, I gather it was quite a close-run thing whether Obama administration went for healthcare or for the climate change after the stimulus. Um, Rahm Emanuel played a rather decisive role in favour of healthcare. Now, had he gone for climate instead, it has been put to me, had he done so in the context of supporting green industries, that it might be more economically successful as well as more environmentally successful. Is there anything in that? Um, I, I think it would have been an entirely plausible scenario. Um, I think that the arguments about bringing healthcare reform in straight away in, 19, in, in 2009 um, were flawed if you were going to be as casual as Rahm Emanuel was about how you bring the bills in. Uh, Rahm Emanuel once sneered uh, at opponents of healthcare reform, or rather at people, at critics of, of the Obama policy, critics particularly from the left, he sneered, my job is to get the bill through Congress, not through the Brookings Institution. Well, in fact, actually, Roosevelt, when he got Social Security through in 1935, effectively got it through as a technocratic, independent-backed reform, um, dictated from on top. And the Obama administration, I think, absolved itself of the responsibility of doing that. But wasn't that, in their defence, wasn't that a direct response to the failure of health reform under Clinton, where uh, Hillary Clinton had actually ended up taking it on in precisely this kind of technocratic way, and it ended up, the sort of combination of a technocratic approach and quite a lot of lobbying mm. produced this awful kind of right. many-headed beast that nobody wanted to vote for. I mean, they were responding to a quite determined, failed effort to reform healthcare by President Clinton. But they, they then came in with the same many-headed mess, um, <laughs> not from that approach, from, the, from their alternative approach. Um, and, and, it, and it was, I, I still think, one of the examples of a, of a, of a sloppy, overconfident uh, Obama administration in, the, in its first year. And it paid the price in Massachusetts. One more. Uh, right at the back, just because we haven't... Or maybe we take, we take one there and one there, and then that will be it. We'll take it together. I'm, I'm struck with the comparison. I'm, I study Chinese, and I, I see the Chinese on their 13th plan now, effortlessly passing over management of the country to the next group. Um, you describe a Congress where nobody talks to each other and they want to butt heads. How do you see the future? I sort of look back on a global scale. As, as an investor in, in companies, you would back the Chinese company, you would not back the American company if you hear that management is at war with each other. How do you perceive the future, therefore, of running the United States? Uh, should I try and take this last one and then we'll... Um, you can't win with questions. I know that everyone will end up hating me anyway. But... Hello, actually, mine is slightly related to that. Oh, I was good. wondering how much easier FDR's task was because in the Soviet Union there was a clear alternative to capitalism. Capitalism actually seemed to be under genuine threat, whereas now, you know, there doesn't seem to be any other option. I mean, I think the, um, the question, I mean, one of the answers to the general question about the future compared to, to the Chinese threat and, and, and the alternatives that are out there, uh, is that dismal prognostications about the future of American politics of the sort I've given today uh, have always been there. Uh, and two of the most dismal was one in 1932, uh, where there was complete predictions that Congress was, going to, was incapable to be, to be governed. 1960, political scientists wrote a book called The Deadlock of Democracy, how impossible it was to work in Washington. Uh, 1932 was a prelude to the New Deal. 1960 was a prelude to the extraordinarily rich legislation in the 1960s. So somewhere along the line, the Americans managed to muddle through. Uh, and if you look at uh, the current economic position 
the current improved job prospects, current rebound in housing, the share prices, and in the long term, uh, self-sufficiency in energy, then uh, you know, the Americans are going to, to, to get by okay, um, whether their politicians manage to, to, to stop being dysfunctional or not. Um, and uh, somehow they'll muddle through, and I think that's yes. probably right. If you look at, if you read some of the things that I get in my inbox of, you know, analysis of, you know, financial market trends in the U.S., where should you invest your money, explaining what's going on in U.S. financial markets, it's basically an economic version of that. It basically says no one's ever lost money really betting, um, or everyone's always lost money betting against America. And although politics seems a lot more dysfunctional than it even has been in previous times, there are these kind of underlying economic advantages, and we're just going to bet on those. I mean, if you just look at the stock market, the U.S. stock market in the last six months, despite fiscal cliff, despite you know manifest incompetence and incapacity of the political classes, uh, investors just don't seem to care. Maybe um, maybe that's a lesson for somebody. Thank you very much, uh, to Professor Badger.